Today we're going to begin a series in the book of James. It's um, often people refer to it as to the as to the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's sort of the wisdom literature of the New Testament, and it's, uh, it's a great passage of Scripture, a great book, and I'm looking forward to journeying through it with you. So as we begin this morning, I'm just going to ask that we would pray together and ask God's blessing upon this study as we jump in and delve into this inspired book. Father God, I thank you for your word I thank you that it is inspired, that it is inerrant, it is your truth that's given to us. You have communicated everything that we need to know for life and godliness, and you've done it in a way that is apprehendable. We can understand it, we can grasp it. I thank you, Lord, that through the foolishness of preaching, um, you take the word and you transform our hearts. You literally change us as we sit under the proclamation of the word. You literally change us as we quietly, morning by morning, pour ourselves into it and you, and you pour yourself into us. I thank you that it is living, that it is dynamic, that it is active, that it is powerful, that it never uh, fails to accomplish that for which you send it. And so I pray this morning, Lord Jesus, that you would take your word and that you would use it powerfully in our hearts. I pray that it would find root in my heart, Lord, although I know what I am going to say, uh, although I know what is in this sermon, I pray, Lord, that you would surprise me and challenge me and convict me and change me and do the same to all of us, I pray, as your word has its way with us. We humble ourselves before it. And we just ask that you would work now and in the coming weeks as this book is preached, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have just celebrated last week, uh, New Year, and and as as often times is our want, uh, we make New Year's resolutions. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands about who made a New Year's resolution and, and whether or not you have still kept it. But I can tell you from personal experience, I've given up. I... uh, there are very few New, Year, New Year's resolutions that I actually kept. I made them for a while and, and failed quite miserably for a long time until I quit, which is a, which is a great solution to the problem. <laughs> but I think that's, that's sort of kind of what we do at New Year. We decide to eat less or we decide to eat more healthy or eat better. We decide to exercise more. To be more patient, some of us decide that we're going to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry, as James says in one of his imperatives in the book. And oftentimes, more often than not, if we're honest with ourselves, we we fail. And I think that demonstrates, at least to me, and I think it does to all of us when we think about it, that just wanting to be different and knowing that we should be different and then even making a choice to be different doesn't always make us different. Sometimes it does. Sometimes, occasionally, it does. But usually it doesn't. And I think that we all know that just knowing what we should be is not the key to real change and Christian maturity in our lives. Because if it was, if all we needed to know was what it is that God wanted us to do, resolutions would work, would they not? If all we knew that the Lord wanted me to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, 
And if I could accomplish that just simply by making a resolution to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, then I would be that man. But oftentimes, we're not, right? Oftentimes, we're quick to speak, slow to listen, and quick to become angry. That's who we are. And if resolutions, if decisions, if recommitments could solve that problem, all of us here would be perfect, complete, lacking nothing in terms of our Christian maturity. But that's not who we are. And it's for this reason that James didn't begin the letter by challenging his readers to control their tongue, to be humble, to seek the wisdom of God, to pray like Elijah, but to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. It's for that reason that he didn't begin with the imperatives. Now, there's lots of imperatives in this book. There's lots of commands in this book. But he didn't begin with the commands. Instead, he begins with giving us the pattern that God uses to deal with those intractable, stubborn sins that all of us deal with. He gives us a pattern that God uses to deal with those things that in our lives are beyond the resolutions. Now, the reality is that some of us have made resolutions. We become Christians and you decide, you know what? I need to go to church regularly because that's what Christians do. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus the first Sunday, uh, the first uh, day of the week. And Christians have been doing it for 2,000 years. And you've been doing that faithfully. You made a decision. And now you worship God Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. And that's a good thing. Resolution worked in that instance. But all of us have those intractable sins, those difficult sins, those sins that keep on tripping us up. And he gives us a pattern in this, at the beginning of the book, to show us how God works in our lives to mature us and grow. So if you have your Bible, turn to James chapter 1, and I'm going to read the first four verses. James 1, 1 through 4 says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, by implication in the word. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here's God's pattern for growing us, that God's pattern for maturing us so that we would become perfect and complete and lacking nothing. In his wisdom, God takes us through trials. In his wisdom, he disciplines us. The Bible talks about how he um, corrects us, how he chastises us. And those difficulties, those trials, that discipline tests our faith. And as we endure, the result is Christian maturity. Enduring in a trial is God's path to growing us, to maturing us into his, his image, into lasting change. Now again, personal confession. I am way more inclined to look for an escape than I am to look to endure. Can, can I hear an amen? amen. <laughs> yeah. I, I am way more inclined to look for an escape than I am to look for ways to endure. 
Our tendency and the tendency of our culture is to run from trials and toward comfort. But real Christian maturity always comes as a result of accepting and enduring and persevering in these God-ordained trials that God brings into our life. And that's what we're going to be focusing on on the last half of this message. But always, when you begin a study in the book, there's certain things that you've got to, you've got to figure out, certain questions that you have to answer. And there are five questions that I want to begin asking. And the first one is this, about the book, is the author. The author. Who wrote this book? It says James. Now, there are lots of Jameses in the New Testament. There's James, the son of Zebedee, and James, the son of Alphaeus. But this James is James the just. This James is James, the younger brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that for a lot of reasons, tradition and so forth. But one of the reasons most prominently is that he doesn't introduce himself. He just says, James. So like if you're a golf fan and you're watching the golf from Hawaii and wishing that you were there, it's on this weekend, and they talk about Rory or they talk about Phil or they talk about, you know, some golfer, they're distinguished by their first name. I looked it up yesterday. There's other players on the PGA Tour who are named Phil. But when I say Phil, all of you think of Phil Mickelson because he's just, he's Phil. And it's the same deal here. Everyone in the first century church knew that James was James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the New Testament church. James was one of four brothers, five brothers, actually, if you consider Jesus. He had, Joseph and Mary had four other boys after Jesus was born. Their names were Joseph, Simeon, Judas, he wrote the book. We also call him Jude, he wrote the book, and James. And there was sisters born as well. Mark tells us, Mark 3 tells us that at a particular time in his ministry, his family, now led by James, he's the second in line to Jesus, his father Joseph is dead, so James is the leader of the family. They conclude that Jesus has completely lost his mind and they go to take custody of him because they thought he was delusional. He wasn't a believer in Christ until after the resurrection, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus had a meeting with his brother James. It's not recorded anywhere in the Gospels. It's not recorded anywhere in Acts. But Paul tells us it happened. And James had an experience similar to that of the Apostle Paul, where he met the resurrected Christ and he believed. And he became a believer. In Acts chapter, chapter 1, we see that in the upper room, Mary was there with her, with her children, all his brothers and their sisters in the upper room at Pentecost. And at that time, Peter was clearly the leader of the New Testament church. But by Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem, which happened in about 50 AD, James, the brother of Jesus, the author of this book, was clearly the leader of the church. When it came time for the church to decide what Gentile believers should be required to do in terms of keeping the law, it was James who sort of heard the evidence, and it was James, the brother of Jesus, who made the decision and wrote that letter telling the Gentile churches what their responsibilities were. As the brother of the Messiah, James had taken the helm of this new movement, and he had become a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, a bondservant of God, a slave of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He was now a servant. He was now a slave to his big brother. Many years later, he was about 63 years old, a mob eventually took him to the pinnacle of the temple, the same place where Jesus had been tempted by Satan, and they tossed him off. It was about a 100-foot drop. The drop didn't kill him. They began to stone him. And finally, somebody took a big bat that they used to beat carpets to clean them with and hit him on the head and killed him. So for 32 years of his life, from the time he met Jesus that day, he was a bondservant, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? This is where Christian maturity begins. This is where Christian maturity begins, when we recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. So as we begin this study, it's imperative to ask, who is Jesus to you? Is he Lord? Is he master? Are you a slave of Christ? Is that how you would define yourself when you strip everything else away? Take away your responsibilities at work, your profession, what you're going to do tomorrow, tomorrow morning. When you strip all that away, husband, mom, father, grandfather, take it all away at the very core of who you are. Can you say, yes, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I am a believer that he died on the cross for me, that he took my place. He suffered in my stead. My sin was placed on his shoulders. He rose again from life and he has given me his perfect righteousness. I am now because of the cross, because of the gospel, I am now a child of the living God. Are you able to say that? Because if you are, then you are inevitably and invariably must be a slave of Jesus Christ. You cannot believe the gospel and say that you are somehow not a slave of Christ. This is where Christian maturity, this is where becoming perfect, complete, lacking nothing, this is where it begins. But if this is all it was, again, again, resolutions would work. If, if all it required was for you to say, I believe the gospel, and as a consequence of the gospel, I am a slave of Jesus Christ, therefore, I will be obedient. If that's all it required, then resolutions would work. But you know they don't. We know they don't. Secondly, the recipients. Who is this written to? Well, he talks about, you see that in verse 2, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He's writing to Christian Jews who have been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, throughout Israel and the Roman Empire. You see, for the first two or three years of the early church, the church and Old Testament Judaism lived in this kind of uh, tense harmony together. Well, you really can't call it a harmony. It was an accommodation because of Gamaliel and some wiser people in the Sanhedrin. There was this uneasy tension that existed between the Old Testament church and the New Testament church. The Jews worshipped in the temple. They lived in Jerusalem. They celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. They recognized him as the Jewish Messiah. In chapter 8 of Acts, after the stoning the murder of Stephen, we read that a severe persecution broke out and people were scattered into Judea and Samaria. Chapter 11 of Acts tells us that the Jewish Christians were spread throughout Phoenicia, Cyprus, and all the way up until Antioch. So the phrase, those who are dispersed abroad, those who are the dispersion, the tribes in the dispersion, that phrase would have stirred incredibly painful memories for everyone who was reading this book. It would, it, would have, it would have stirred all kinds of painful remembrances. 
for James' Jewish readers. The original phrase in the Greek is in the diaspora, from which we get the word diaspora. We've just taken it from the Greek language. So I'm part of the Scottish diaspora here in Canada. We immigrated years ago. I was nine and decided to move my family, my mom and dad here to Canada, and so we came. That was supposed to be funny, actually. It didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> my mom and dad came to Canada. They brought me at nine. But, but I was born and raised in Scotland, so I'm part of the Scottish diaspora in, in North America. You're from all over the world, and God has brought us here together into this congregation of people. We are the diaspora from our particular home country. And so these people were the, the Jewish diaspora, Jewish Christians living as transplants throughout the empire. And they had not gone because of obedience. That's the thing. They didn't, they didn't go because Jesus was Lord. They knew he was Lord. Think about it for a second. What was the last thing Jesus said to his disciples? You are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. What was the last thing he said to them on the, the end of Matthew, Mount of Olives? Go therefore into all the world. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. Think about it. He was Lord. They just witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He was with them for 40 days. They had seen him ascend into heaven. They knew exactly what they were to do. Go. And what did they do? Stayed. Now, does that boggle your mind? It makes me feel good about myself. They stayed. They stayed in Jerusalem. Again, did they believe that Jesus was Lord? Absolutely. Was their theology correct? Perfectly correct. Did they believe in the resurrection? Sure they did. But did they do what they were told to do? No. Can you relate? I can relate to that. So here's the thing. And this is why I think it would have been such a painful word for them to hear, diaspora. God changed them. God made them obedient through painful circumstances, through trials, through difficulties, through suffering, through hardship, through disappointment. In referring to the dispersion, referring to the Jewish diaspora, James is reminding his readers subtly, gently, of the trials, the pain that initially moved them to obey Jesus. You know, there are times when we obey, we make a resolution, we decide to come to church, we decide to live a more godly life, and you know what? It works. It gets traction, and, and just, it's so great. But there's times when God must discipline. There are times when God must do his work in our lives. And those times can be very painful, very difficult. The formula that James is going to, is, has laid out and the formula that he's illustrated subtly by using the word diaspora is a formula that we've got to accept. God disciplines us for our good because he loves us. 
He disciplines us to shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. And that requires pain. Requires loss. Requires disappointment. And it's a formula that each of us have to embrace. We have to expect it. We have to embrace it. Because it's going to happen. Because we are loved by God. The situation, well, they're just various trials and difficulties. As you can imagine, people who have been uprooted in the middle of the night, facing intense persecution from mad people like the Saul of Tarsus, people who flee with the clothes on their back and a few belongings, leaving their home, leaving their non-Christian family behind, their social structure, their employment, escaping with their lives. You can imagine the trials that they are having, financial struggles, being exploited by ungodly employers. There's relational struggles within the church, and as we go through the book, we'll see these various trials and difficulties. The date of the book is probably the first book written in the New Testament. There's some question as to whether it was 1 Thessalonians or James, but it's most likely that James was the first book written. Uh, in the early 40s, probably a decade, maybe a little more than a decade after the death and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Very, very, very early. And then the letter itself. It's not a personal letter like Philemon is a personal letter from Paul to his friend Philemon. It's not a, it's not a letter to a particular church like Ephesians or, or Philippians we just studied. It is what we call an encyclical. It was a letter written that was designed to go just sort of abroad. A very general letter that was to be shared throughout the primarily Jewish church. But obviously here we are 2,000 years later studying it as Gentiles in God's divine strategy and plan. And he begins this letter by saying this, Count it all joy, my brothers, my sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. So he begins by saying, consider it joy when you encounter trials of various kinds, sufferings of various kinds. When God disciplines you, consider it a joy. Why? Because in the end, it produces Christian maturity. It grows us. It transforms us more fully, more completely into the image of Jesus. You know, the reality is, and you know this, if you've traveled a little bit, if you looked at National Geographic specials, there's not a whole lot of stuff growing at the top of Mount Everest, is there? If you go down into the valley, what do you see? It's green. It's alive. It's verdant. There's a ton growing down there. You're going to do your growing as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, in the valleys of your journey. It's, it's almost inevitable. Mountaintop experiences are wonderful, and I love them, and we should cherish them. They're beautiful things. That, the day you got married, it's a mountaintop experience. And many of us, after having been married for a while, find ourselves in the valley. I know that was my experience. Don't tell Cindy, but it was primarily her fault. <laughs> but it's in the valley that you learn. You learn how to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. 
right? It's in the challenges of life that God shapes and grows and changes us. So I just want to say four things about these trials. The first thing is this. All trials have a great goal. All trials have a great goal. What James is saying is essentially this. Don't let the struggles and the trials of life get you down, but choose to be joyful. Choose to be joyful knowing that God is using these difficult circumstances to shape and mold your life. Here he's saying choice, that joy is a choice. A lot of times, many of us, our moods, our perspectives are, are tempered by our circumstances. What James is essentially saying to us here is look through the circumstance, look past the circumstance and understand this, that behind the circumstance, behind the trial, behind the difficulty, behind the disappointment, behind the failure, God is at work. And God has a plan for this pain and, and this suffering. God intends to use this to shape and to mold and to grow you into the image of Jesus. God uses trials. In his sovereignty, he allows trials and struggles, disappointments and setbacks, failures and difficulty to shape and mold and make us into the image of his son. And this is always God's goal. It is not to hurt us. It is not to crush us. It is, it is not to discourage us. It is to grow us. And if we could understand that, if we could see that when we face trials, maybe you're facing a trial right now, and I'm going to explain what a trial is more specifically. But maybe you're experiencing something as a trial right now, and you are disillusioned by it, you're disappointed by it, you're becoming angry with God because of it. Look through that, because you are loved child of God. And behind it is a God who is intentionally deliberately using this pain, this suffering, this difficulty to shape and mold you into the image of his son. I don't know if you are in a season of trial right now, struggle, failure, disappointment. But I do know that if you're a child of God, God can and will grow and transform you. Now I said can there very intentionally. Because sometimes we can short-circuit this process. Sometimes we can prolong the process. And that's the second point I want to make. A trial is specifically designed to test your faith. A trial, by definition, tests our faith. Do you see what he says there? Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That's a funny thing, isn't it? That God takes us through circumstances in order to test our faith. A trial, by definition, is not just a difficult circumstance. It's not just a setback at work. A trial, by definition, is something that brings us to question our faith. It brings us to question the foundational realities of our life. That's what a trial does. A trial causes us to wrestle with God. In other words, a trial causes us to ask this, what do I really believe about God? A trial brings us to a place where we ask ourselves, is God there? 
Is he good? Is he trustworthy? Is he faithful? Does he love me? Can I count on him? Do I have reason to hope in him? So you receive a bad diagnosis. You lose your job and you're struggling to find another. Your spouse walks out. Your business fails. Your child rebels and turns against Christ and against the gospel. And you come to that place where you realize suddenly that you're questioning, do I really believe what I have professed to believe? You're in the midst of a trial. And that's not a bad place to be. That's not a bad place to be. Do I really believe what I have professed all these years to believe? And the reason this The reason this is so valuable, the reason that a trial is so valuable is because it forces us to wrestle with truth. A trial forces us to wrestle with truth that may have been, for the longest time, theoretical, conceptual, theological. And it takes that truth and causes you to say, do I really, really believe this here? In my heart. Is it personal? Is it experiential? A trial takes truth that for a long time may have been accepted theologically and theoretically and makes that truth a foundational pillar of my life. Truth that we once once gave intellectual assent to now becomes a lifeline and you hang on to that truth. You live that truth. That truth beats in your heart as a foundational reality of your life. I'll give you an illustration of this. I have a really good friend. He got saved in our church about 25 years ago, became an elder. We are now part of something that I started called the Georgetown Gentlemen's Walking Club. (laughs) kind of a funny name for a bunch of middle-aged guys who walk regularly together in the ravines in Georgetown. But he's part of the Georgetown Gentleman's Walking Club, and I was with him in September as we were chatting, and he told me what happened to him. He was flying back from a long trip. He flies triple sevens. And he began to experience this excruciating pain in his ears, both sides. And it was almost, he said, incapacitating. He almost had to go up to the bunk and lay down because it was so painful. But he wasn't. He, he was able to fulfill the responsibilities he had. He was able to land the plane, and he came home, and he went to the doctor, and the doctor sent him to a specialist, and the specialist said, you may not be able to fly again because of what's going on, and there's a fancy name for this thing. Now, Craig, my friend, would have said to me, since the day he got saved, probably, God is good. God is good. God is good. I know God is good. I understand that. I theologically grasp it. I can see it in the scriptures. I have an understanding cerebrally, conceptually, theoretically. I know that God is a good God. But now he's learning something here. That God is good. And I know that. And that is foundational in my life now. 
I'm resting there. As a matter of fact, that's what I'm hanging on to for dear life. You see, a trial, the beauty of a trial is that it takes what we have known on a theological level, in that sort of theoretical dimension, and drives us to hold tightly to it in our experience. And this is hard to do. It is not easy to do. And that's why James goes on now and talks about steadfastness or endurance or perseverance. Let me read it to you again. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness. Our role, thirdly then, is to remain steadfast in the test. That's what our job is. God brings a test into our life that tests our faith. We, we see the truth in a new and fresh way, and we just hold on to that truth tightly. That's what we are called to do. Hold tightly to the truth or the truths that God reaffirms experientially in your life as a result of the test. Interestingly, James uses a lot of Old Testament quotes. He talks about people from the Old Testament. He talks about Job, and he talks about Rahab, and he talks about Abraham. And Abraham's an interesting guy. When you think about his life and his journey, Abraham had lots of tests. One of them was that day that he was talking with the Lord. Remember this back in Genesis 18? And the Lord says to, to Abraham, I'm going to go and I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and, and Abraham realizes to his horror, my family's there. I have a, I have a cousin and, and his wife and, and family, or was it his nephew? I can't remember. But there was a family relationship, right? And so, and so he begins to bargain with God. And he, he, he knows, and he says at the beginning, Lord, if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom, are you going to destroy it? And God says, no. And Abraham affirms what he knows is that the, God, the, the, the judge of all the earth will do, what, do what's right. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. And then he keeps, and he kind of bargains. Like he says, but what about 45 people, Lord? Well, no, I won't, I won't destroy the city if there's 45. And he, and he goes, well, what about 40 people? No, I, I won't destroy the city and he gets down to 10. And at 10, God says, no, I won't destroy the city if there's 10. And all of a sudden, he stops. And, and in my reading of that passage, the truth that God is just, in Abraham's experience, went from an intellectual understanding to a heart knowledge. I can trust you. You will do what's right. My, my, my family is still under the wrath of God. I don't know what's going to happen here, but I'll trust because you're just. <clears throat> I think what happened in Abraham's situation has to happen in our situation. When we face trials... We root ourselves in the truth. When we get to the end of our rope, we tie a knot and we hang on to what we know to be true. And this is what distinguishes Christians from pseudo-Christians. This is what distinguishes genuinely born-again people from make-believers. 
right? You got different kind of people. You get non-believers, believers, then some people in the church are the make-believers. And it's the testing that separates the sheep from the goats. It's when we get to the end of our rope, we tie a knot, that truth, and we hang on to it for all our might because we believe what God says is true. We trust him. And we hang in there. Think about the Apostle Paul in, in, in 2 Timothy. He's at the end of his life. He knows that his head is going to be severed from his body. He knows that he's as good as dead. His life is over. He's essentially rotting in a Roman prison. And within a very short period of time, Nero and his cronies are going to put him to death for preaching the gospel. And I think all of his life, he's known, he's known the truth of the resurrection. He's believed it. But now he's living it. And he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, for this cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I know. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, I'm confident. I know. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. I know. I know. I know. If you're facing a trial, look for the truth. If you're going through a trial today and you're questioning and you're wondering, look for the truth. If you're at the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on to that truth. Be steadfast. Endure. Be tough. Don't give up. Trust God and hang on. Hang on. And let the process of truth going from head to heart happen. Because that is the catalyst for real change in our lives. When, when we know, when we know as the apostle knew. And then lastly, and here's the beautiful thing. Lastly, God promises to transform the steadfast. Let steadfast, or what I'm calling toughness, Christian toughness, in the trial have its full effect. You see what he says? Let steadfastness have its effect, have its consequence, have its impact, make its mark, do the work of transformation. We don't change ourselves. That's the point. What we do is we hang on to the truth of God. We hang on to God. We simply will not let go. And God changes us. He is the author and the perfecter of faith. Resolutions might work. Making a choice might transform you. Some of us learn the easy way. And that's great. Some of us learn the hard way. And that's painful. But God is committed to each one of us to transform us in the trial. So when you're in the crucible, know this, that the goldsmith is purifying the gold. When you're on that wheel and life seems completely out of control and it's just spinning, understand this, that the potter is shaping the clay. 
The critical thing is that you're hanging on. At the end of your rope, you've got that truth, whatever that is. God is good. God is sovereign. God loves me. He is alive from the dead. Heaven is a reality. I need not fear death. Whatever it is, hang on to that. And as you do, the most amazing thing happens. God changes you from the inside out. He transforms us. He shapes us. Steadfastness, our job, results in transformation. We do our part, and God does his. He grows us, and he matures us, and he completes us so that we lack nothing. So here's my formula. The formula I put for Christian maturity, I put together this week. Trials come inevitably because resolutions don't work. In that trial, we've got to find the truth. In that testing, we find the truth. We identify that truth that's in our heads. And then we hang on. We get tough. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. And we hang in there. We tie a, a, a knot at the, at the end of our rope and we hang in there. We say, I believe you, God. I trust you. I will not let you go. And then God in his grace transforms. And we come out of that valley and we look ourselves in the mirror and suddenly we realize something about ourselves. I'm not the man. I am not the woman that I used to be. God has done something wonderful in my life. I am more perfect. I am more complete. I am more like Jesus. And then we're able to look back and you say, Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for that disappointment. Thank you for that trial. Thank you for that suffering. Thank you for that valley. Thank you for that pain. Thank you. Because without it, I'd never be the man or the woman that I am today. So count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith, testing of your faith, produces steadfastness or endurance. And let steadfastness and endurance have its consequences, perfect consequence, its full effect, that you may continue to become more perfect, more complete, more mature until the day of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word again. I thank you that it is inspired. I thank you that your younger brother wrote this under the direction of your spirit. And I thank you for the impact that it can have in our lives. And I pray that today, regardless of what we are going through, that we would just know the truth, hang on to the truth tightly, and that you would do your work of transformation in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.